SiriusXM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Former UN ambassador and diplomat. The trail had largely been blazed. And what was really interesting was being the first UN ambassador under the first African-American president. She talks about her early years at Stanford and views on Washington politics. You know, whoever was going to be the messenger uh, in a hot, hot political season, re-election campaign, was going to be attacked. This week on Stanford Pathfinders, Susan Rice. Now, here's your host, Howard Wolf. When Leland and Jane Stanford founded Stanford University in the late 1800s, they had a very distinct vision in mind. They were intent upon founding a university that would create cultured, useful citizens who would become leaders in their respective fields and devote themselves to the public welfare and the betterment of mankind. Today's guest on Stanford Pathfinders, Susan Rice, would make Leland and Jane Stanford very proud as she is exactly the sort of graduate that the founders had in mind. A history graduate of Stanford with both master's and doctor degrees from Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, Susan Rice is a highly accomplished scholar and diplomat. Perhaps most importantly, she is a fierce champion of American interests and values. Ms. Rice has a recently published book called Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For, that vividly connects the personal and professional parts of her life story. From the Clinton to the Obama administrations, and from Black Hawk Down to Benghazi, Tough Love is not only a great read, but a masterclass in some of the most complex international relations issues to face the U.S. over the past several decades. We are thrilled to have Susan Rice with us here today. Susan, welcome to the show. Susan, you are a dyed-in-the-wool East Coaster, right? Grew up in D.C., dad went to City College of New York, your mother went to Radcliffe, but you somehow decide to come here to Stanford. So tell us a little bit about that story, and <clears throat> how did your parents react to that? Well, first thing I need to say is, yes, I am a dyed-in-the-wool East Coaster, um, but my f- father really blazed the trail, because even though he went to City College of New York uh, for his undergraduate and master's degree, he went to Berkeley for his PhD, and he always described his years at Berkeley studying economics as the greatest time of his life. And so I had one parent who understood the allure of the West Coast and was completely supportive, and another parent, my mother, who went to to Radcliffe, obviously now Harvard, who was flabbergasted at the notion that her daughter (laughs) would turn down Harvard and Yale to go to Stanford. Now, this is 19... 82. And, you know, I was lucky to have that kind of choice. 
And it was really quite simple. I visited Stanford um, when I was younger, maybe 11 or 12. And my mother was in higher education policy. She knew Fred Hargadon, uh, the former dean of, dean of admissions. The dean Fred, of deans. Fred took me and my little brother around campus, showed us a great time, and gave us a Stanford band album, which I had all through my uh, growing up at home and listening to the tunes. And when it came time to visit colleges, um, after getting into Stanford in April, I came out here to visit. And I stayed with some friends of mine from high school, had a tremendous time, and then got back on the plane uh, to fly back home to the East Coast. And our plane had to divert to Omaha, Nebraska, because of snowstorms in the East. Game, set, match. And I spent the night on the floor of the Omaha airport, and I said to myself, I will never forgive myself if I <laughs> spend all my winters in, in New England freezing my behind off. And we are happy for your decision. But my mother really, truly thought that, you know, it was the sacrilege of all sacrileges. Sodom and Gomorrah, the West Coast. Well, not just the West, it wasn't the West Coast. It was Leland Stanford Junior University, ah. as she used to say. Uh, to tease me, um, as opposed to, you know, Harvard or Yale, which of course is what everybody's supposed to do back then in that time. Uh, she got over it. Um, she realized that I made the great choice for myself. She loved Stanford. Um, she loved the fact that I met my husband at Stanford, whom she highly approved of. And, you know, once she got used to it, it was all fine, but she was, you know, she was a sloppy mess. <laughs> In the, in the first instance, as I write about it in, the in a scene in the book where she loses it in the Washington National Cathedral when I tell her I'm going to Stanford. That was a great passage. So let's talk a little bit more about your parents. These are wonderfully accomplished professionals. These were amazing parents. You were blessed. Um, how did their accomplishments, their stature, their professionalism, how did that inform your life path in terms of your career? Because my guess is the bar was pretty high for you when you were growing up, <laughs> right? The bar was high. But, you know, to understand my parents and their impact on me, I actually have to go back to my grandparents and even a little bit before because my grandparents on both sides uh, had a very different background and experience. On my mother's side, um, my grandmother and grandfather emigrated from Jamaica to Portland, Maine in 1912. My grandfather was a janitor. My grandmother was a maid and a seamstress. They had no education, but they came here in search of the American dream as so many immigrant families did and do. Uh, and they had five kids and they scraped and saved and sent all five of their kids to college. It's amazing. Um, my mother was quite accomplished, but so were my uncles. Two were doctors, one was an optometrist, one was a university president. And along came my mother, the baby, who couldn't like her brothers go to Bowdoin, so she had to figure out something else because she was a woman and they didn't accept women back then. Uh, and so she ended up at this place nobody in her family had heard of before called Radcliffe, um, which turned out to be okay. She, <laughs> <laughs> she, she excelled there. She was magna cum laude. She was uh, president of the student body, uh, class marshal, and all those things as only one of three African-American women uh, in her class of 1954. And as I listen to you say this and I look at your face, the pride that is actually glowing off of your face is amazing. Thank you. You were no, very proud of your mother. I'm very proud of both my parents. And then my dad uh, was born in segregated South Carolina in the heart of Jim Crow around 1920. And he actually came from a, a father and grandfather who had a college education. And he, the, wow. his parents, his dad and grandfather were ministers and teachers. Um, and yet for my dad, you know, being 
raised in the thick of the most oppressive racism and, um, you know, the height of lynching in the South and just everything being so intensely uh, oppressive, he really struggled to figure out how do I find myself and excel given my skills and, and given, you know, the gifts that his parents had given him when at every turn the doors are closing. So he served during World War II uh, at Tuskegee with the Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he really resented mightily the notion that African-Americans like himself were meant to fight for the freedom of everybody but our own people. And so he came out to Berkeley, actually, on the tip of a friend that he met at Tuskegee who said, you know, California is a little bit less uptight about race. Um, If you're going to graduate school, think about coming out here. And he was skeptical, but he did. And it was a, just a broadening, eye-opening experience. And anyway, there, my both my parents had this great investment and belief in the power of education and the compulsion to rise. They had exceeded the expectations of, of their parents. It was our job to, to replicate and exceed their success. And so the bar was set high, and their passion in different ways was for policy and for service. My dad... Um, eventually rose to be a governor of the Federal Reserve. Uh, And my mother um, was eulogized as the mother of the Pell Grant program when she passed in 2017. She had been instrumental, along with Senator Claiborne Pell, in establishing and sustaining that program, which has enabled 80 million Americans to, to reach college. So they just were about the business of serving and contributing and excelling and will be unto us if we <laughs> didn't do our our part so in tough love you you write about your dad and um him teaching you about being a black woman in white america a black person a black person in not white a, america. not so much he didn't know so much about being, being a, a woman, woman. <laughs> very good point thank you susan for correcting me there but but my but, mother knew about both. Yes, but he taught you life lessons. Yes. This was what he called them, life lessons. And so tell us a little bit about what you learned from your father. Well, he taught us so many different things, as did my mom. Um, but I think the most impactful lessons were about how to deal with prejudice. And they came very much from his own experience. Very pragmatic. Yeah, I mean, he basically determined that if he was going to fulfill his potential as a, you know, obviously, you know, very bright uh, very ambitious young economist that he couldn't allow other people's bigotry to infuse his own sense of self. And as I write in the book, he had a saying that he came to to embrace, which is if my being black is going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem for somebody else, not for me. In other words, he he figured out that bigotry is a result of the bigot's insecurity. If you're the target, as he was throughout his life in different ways, you do have something of a choice, which is to decide that you're not going to let the bigot's uh, definition of you become your own self-definition. In other words, you don't doubt yourself or discount yourself um, or dismiss yourself because other people might. He served you well. By both my parents. I want to emphasize that. Okay. <laughs> yes, both, not just dad, but dad and mom. All right. So you come to Stanford, you get your bachelor's in history. Then you go to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar where you get your master's and your doctorate in international relations. 
Why international relations? What got you so excited about that discipline? Well, it's really interesting. When I went to Oxford, first of all, I thought I was just going to do two years and do my master's, master's degree and come back and get a law degree. And I thought I'd always been since childhood interested in public policy, but I actually thought I was more likely to get involved in domestic policy, something around civil rights or uh, increasing economic opportunity for low-income people. And I viewed my time at Oxford as a as a short-lived opportunity to expand my horizons. And I actually thought until my mid-20s that I might want to run for elected office. And my dream from 10 until about 23 or 4 was to be a United States senator, oh. uh, even though I was from Washington, D.C., which Makes puts some... Difficult. <laughs> it's a little difficult. <laughs> Made it difficult. Maybe but Maine. anyway, anyway yeah. I, I realized at some stage that that wasn't where I wanted to end up. But in the process of choosing how to spend those two years at Oxford, I thought, well, let me learn about something I really don't have much of a background in and sort of fill in a gap. Um, and I fell in love with it and decided to stay and do my do my PhD. And even then, having done that, I wasn't certain that that would be my career. I went to McKinsey and Company right. as a management consultant after uh, finishing my PhD. And then I had the opportunity to join the Clinton administration. I'd, I'll shorten the story. But anyway, I had friends who I'd worked with on a previous presidential campaign, and they were staffing up the Clinton White House at the very beginning of the administration. And I actually had an opportunity to work on the National Economic Council staff that had just been established under Bob Rubin or to work on the National Security Council staff uh, as a policy person um, under Tony Lake. And I really kind of did this eeny, meeny, miny, mo as I didn't know where my heart lay and chose national security because I thought that, one, it was interesting, and two, that it would make be harder to, to transition from foreign, from domestic policy to foreign policy than the other way around if I changed my mind. So and that's how I got sucked into it. So let's talk about that time in the Clinton administration because here you're taking your scholarship in international relations, a master's and a PhD, and all of a sudden you have to apply that to the real world. So what were the biggest sort of aha moments there that, you know, Theoretically, you were studying all this stuff, but then you're actually in the Clinton White House. Yeah, well, and the, you're talking the, about national security the, issues. The truth is, my academic preparation was not that useful. <laughs> That's what to, I was sort of driving at. I hate to at. say that. Yeah. Well, but in in some ways, the Oxford PhD was more useful than what I might have gotten back here because it was less theoretical. It was historically grounded. It was more concrete, and you know, the knowledge of of history was hugely valuable to me at early stages of policymaking and subsequently. Um, the, the, train, but the rigor of learning how to write and express myself, all of that was very valuable. But actually, my time at McKinsey was also really valuable training for oh, government. interesting. Because it taught me how to break down a problem and how to, you know, how to assess options and how to produce you know, data and information in an easily digestible way and how to get up to speed very quickly on issues that you may have little grounding in. So interestingly, the combination was helpful. Um, and then I was really fortunate when I joined the Clinton White House at age 28, uh, working on UN affairs and peacekeeping, to have mentors who took me under their wing and taught me how to do government. You know, take my skills and experience and, uh, and, and, and my ability to learn and here's how you write a memo for the president. Here's how you find money in the budget. Here's how you run an interagency meeting. And Richard Clark, who some people will remember as a counterterrorism and now cybersecurity czar, 
was my first immediate boss in government, and he and his team really taught me the ropes. The role of mentors. Huge. All right, so then years later, you end up in the Obama administration and the United States um, ambassador to the United Nations, and you were the first African-American United States ambassador to the United Nations. First African-American woman. Woman, okay. How important was that to you? Truthfully, that wasn't particularly impactful for me. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I've been in many different roles, the youngest, the first woman, the first African-American, the first African-American woman. The, the interesting thing about arriving at the UN at that point was, one, there had been f- women who had been in that role previously, Madeleine Albright, Jean Kirkpatrick, there'd been African-Americans who'd been in that role, Don McHenry, Andrew Young. Um, and so the, the trail had largely been blazed. And what was really interesting was being the first UN ambassador under the first African-American president. Ah, so that was this. And with the, you know, all of the, um, the hopes and the expectations and, you know, trepidations that, you know, other countries brought to assessing this new team and this very different policy. Um, and an approach that was trying to be, to the greatest extent possible, collaborative to advance our interests. So I already told you before we started that I thought you were a great storyteller, and I think your book is fantastic. One of the things that was particularly interesting to me is that you said no matter the room, no matter the group of people, if Barack Obama was in that room, the smartest person in that room was always Barack Obama. It was so frustrating. That's what you write in the book. It was frustrating. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I've heard this from others who know him well. And to hear it from you again just reinforces that this man was special. He was definitely, is definitely special. And he has an extremely, you know, incisive brain. Um, and he's always thinking three or four plays down the field. Um, and, you know, he surrounded himself with very smart people who had themselves sizable egos. So yes. to admit that, you know, that, that he was the smartest person in the room was painful for a lot of us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, the truth be told, that was the case. And so what it meant was um, all of us always had to be on our game and we had to be anticipating the second, third order, fifth order, you know, uh, implications of what we were recommending and really be ready for him to pressure test um, our assumptions and our recommendations. And the most interesting thing about Obama to me was how he went about making decisions. If I, um, as national security advisor, I chaired the cabinet level um, national security principles committee. Um, and that group, you know, Secretary of State, Defense, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Director of National Intelligence, CIA Director, UN Ambassador, blah, blah, blah. Um, and when Obama sat in the chair, at, at which he did as, as president, um, when he was involved in the decision making, he would always pull the junior people around the back of the room, not the ones at the table, in, but in addition to them, the junior people the for people their The people that advice. were less likely to speak. Well, the people he, were not, would not have spoken okay, unless, unless he asked, asked for, um, but who also knew the stuff better than anybody else. Right. And they were if, the domain experts. When there was a firm consensus recommendation, he would immediately get suspicious and really push and probe uh, to be sure that we'd all considered the various alternatives. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf. More with Susan Rice. 
diplomat and former ambassador, next on SiriusXM. This is Stanford Pathfinders. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with Susan Rice, diplomat and former U.S. ambassador. You spend an entire chapter of your book on Benghazi. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about that. So as the listeners know, in September of 2012, the U.S. diplomatic mission in CIA annex in Benghazi, Libya, was attacked, resulting in the deaths of four Americans, including the United States ambassador to Libya. And then you later appeared on on a number of talk shows to discuss the attacks, leading some to accuse you of misleading the American public and what had actually happened. And you go into quite a bit of detail in the book about this. My question to you is this. As you step back and look at this episode now seven years in the rearview mirror, what have you learned from that experience? Well, as I write, I mean, many different things, some very personal, but others more practical. It was powerful practical. the way you wrote about this. It uh, was really powerful. Thank you. I, um, I think in the first instance, I learned as I wrote, and, and I'm not being flip, but to always listen to your mother. Um, my mother, as I explain in the book, um, on the Friday night before the Sunday morning shows that I went on, I went over to stop by and visit her because she had just recently had a stroke following uh, her fourth or fifth cancer surgery. Mm. And she was not physically altogether recovered, but mentally she hadn't really lost her paces. And she asked me what I was doing on the weekend. I said, I'm taking the kids to Ohio State for a football game, and I'm uh, going on the Sunday shows to talk about what has happened this week, which, by the way, was not just Benghazi, but... uh, Violence directed at a number of our embassies throughout the Arab and Muslim world um, due to protesters. And she said, what? Why you? And I explained. Because this wasn't your purview, right? This wasn't, it was in this, my, it, it was, yes, in it, was broad... my pur- it was in my purview. But y- you might have expected, for example, Secretary of State to right. go on. And she asked me specifically, where's Hillary? And I explained that, you know, the White House had asked me to do it after she had turned it down and she had had a very obviously emotionally taxing and exhausting week. And she, my mother said, I smell a rat. Don't do it. And I said, Mom, come on, don't be ridiculous. I've done this before. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be fine. And of course it wasn't. And what she perceived and, you know, what I should have thought of, she was, first of all, she is, my mom was thinking about me. She was looking out for my interests. I was thinking about being a member of a team. And we'd had a tragedy. We'd lost our colleagues. Uh, you were putting America first, not yourself. Yes. I, right? I, I was putting the mission first. The mission first. And I wasn't thinking about myself. And what she perceived was that, you know, whoever was going to be the messenger uh, in a hot, hot political season, re-election campaign was going to be attacked and that as proved to be the case that our early information in all these cases I used the information and the talking points provided by the intelligence community it was our best current understanding of what had happened and I knew it to be that because I was reading the intelligence that underlay those talking points and it was current as of the day before but several days later actually about a week to 10 days later the, the intelligence community updated their assessment based on new information. And it turned out, long story short, that uh, of the talking points that I delivered on that Sunday, ultimately there was one substantive error in them. And that was that there was not a demonstration outside of our facility in Benghazi, our diplomatic facility. But as soon as, you know, within days of my going on the shows, I was attacked for lying, for being incompetent, 
untrustworthy, irresponsible, dishonest. Um, and, you know, it was pretty brutal. <laughs> and it was brutal not only for you, but, but for your mother, for it your daughter? It was brutal for my mother, especially brutal for our nine-year-old daughter, who really suffered for a period of time. She's doing fine now, great now. Uh, but she, as I write in the book, um, started to experience hallucinations, in effect, seeing men coming out of her at walls in third grade classrooms and at friends' houses when she was having sleepovers. And we obviously were freaked out and took her to be tested for the worst case scenarios that the doctors were worried about were things like a brain tumor sure. or schizophrenia or some other kind of psychosis or a vision problem. And eventually, after weeks of tests, they ruled out all those worst case scenarios, thank God. But they determined that she was having a stress reaction to what was happening to me. So speaking of the mission, you put your heart and soul into the mission, and then your term is over, and a new president takes over. <laughs> and I'm just curious. Uh, that's, how, I, that's how we roll in a democracy. That, well, we hope, right? Uh, exactly. Yes. Uh, so what do you think of current U.S. President Donald Trump's foreign policy and national security strategy? Because it's decidedly different. Have? Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, in a, in a short answer, because it's decidedly different than what you and President Obama had um, orchestrated. It worries me enormously, and I'll try to be succinct about why. The biggest reason why is because we're increasingly seeing evidence that the president is not playing the role of commander-in-chief and um, the leader of the free world in service of our national interest, which is what, in our lifetime, I believe every president of both parties thought he was doing uh, and was aiming to do. And instead, he seems to be operating in service of his own political interests or financial interests or something other than the national interest. When you look at Ukraine, when you look at the decision, which was so stunning to pull uh, our forces out of northern Syria prematurely and allow Turkey in and Russia in, um, when you look at how he denigrates repeatedly our allies and has started trade conflicts with our allies over with, under the guise of national security. Can you, why are we in a trade dispute with Canada over steel and aluminum and imposing tariffs on Canada because we think their pro production of steel and aluminum threatens our national security? Canada's fought and died with us in every conflict of importance going back, you know, generations. If you could give your Stanford self of 1986, the year you graduated, any advice, what would it be and why? It would be to go in directions that are uncomfortable, to push myself into places that, you know, were not my comfort zone, whether it's traveling to difficult places, uh, whether it's, you know, engaging people with whom I have nothing in common and, and, and very different perspectives or politics, whether it's, you know, forcing myself to learn how to value companies when I can't stand math and could barely initially manipulate an Excel spreadsheet. These, <laughs> these are the, you know, going in, in directions that, that stretch and challenge you, I think, would be the advice I'd give, but it was also uh, good advice given to me that I tried to follow, if not not to the, the fullest extent. Thank you so much for being on the show. We are honored that you're with us, and I just can't thank you enough. No, thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Stanford Pathfinders on SiriusXM. 
Listen to this and other episodes anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app.